0: Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Fatboy Slim, though you might know the hits, onstage antics and Hawaiian shirts. Norman Cook cut his teeth in an age when DJs were considered just above the gas collector in the club's hierarchy. But by the early 2000s, Cook was unknowingly laying a template for the DJ's main stage festival draw, which later came to fruition in the American EDM phenomenon. Carlos Hawthorne travelled to Brighton to ask Cook what it's like playing to 360,000 people, apologising to burial and keeping up with the new generation of superstar DJs. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on Soundcloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Fatboy Slim is up next.
1: Hi Norman, thanks a lot for having us uh, in your house. It's a beautiful, right. beautiful sunny day. You can see the sea. I actually want to start asking you just about a number of your passions away from music, which is football and your beloved. An interesting swerve. <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah, let's let's start completely um, away from the, the chosen topic. Well, just um, just because Brighton and Hove Albion are, you know, the prospect of Premier League football is very real right now. I mean, are you daring to dream?
2: You know what? I I'm a very superstitious person, and I cannot actually comment on that for fear of jinxing us okay i have done last year uh i mean we've been in the playoffs three times in the last four years and we can't we've become so painfully close and every time there's been a point where like the new like you know like the local bbc news has come around i've done an interview going yeah we're going up and then we never do so i i cannot comment for fear (laughs) of uh jinxing us fair enough but uh, suffice to say it's very exciting times
1: how often do you get to go to the games
2: uh it depends on gigs um i go to every home game every home game when i'm in brighton which is about probably half two-thirds of them yeah it just depends on my gig schedule
1: and the mood is buoyant in the stadium
2: yeah there's a there's a a, yeah a mounting excitement i there's a mounting excitement but there's there's also the feeling of that look come on we've been, here. we've been here and we've been disappointed yeah. before so
1: yeah yeah you've followed the team for a long time and I guess it before that you know you, your love of the city and um, what what is it about this place what do you love so much
2: I've 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 answered this question a hundred times and I still ha- I can't. I still can't quite sum it up I my sister was at university here when and I lived just like an hour up the road and so I used to come down and stay with her for weekends and I just thought It's a city where you can just be who you want to be, and it's a very tolerant, liberal city. in In those days, it was really quite heavy gay, and I like proper, you know, clone, you know, clone pre- AIDS clone gays, and and it was it had tons of nightclubs, and a kind of a sort of uh, yeah, sort of liberal attitude to to alternative. Lifestyles and behaviours, and I don't know. I just I, I was after two years, three years of coming down here, and my sister was down here. When I got a chance to leave home, my first choice of place to go to college was here. And then after three years of living here, I, there was like there was no way I was leaving. But it is. It's. I mean, we were we we were the first city to have a, a green MP. Uh, it's always been a very hedonistic. If you're a DJ or a musician, it's, you know, there's obvious reasons to be here. Um, but also, yeah, just to f- people in people, and Brighton and, and seem to be more tolerant of, of, of alternative ways of living or behaving. Or
1: What was happening musically when you were first visiting or when you, when you I was, came and
2: studied? Cool, when I was first, <laughs> you're going back a bit now. Um, there was a band called The Piranhas. who had a hit with Tom Hark. Uh, I mean, you probably weren't even born. Oh, I wasn't, it, I don't think. There was a, a label called Atrix Records. Right. Uh, and um, what really swung it for me, though, was a club called Sherry's. Uh huh. And um, on Wednesday night at Sherry's, it was called Alternative Night. And basically, this was where this was sort of new romantic the beginnings of electronic, sort of uh, electronic alternative music. And it was a really big night. It was like every, people would come down from London, you know, Boy George and people would come down from London. And um, it's in the days of kind of, sort of spandau ballet and very much the, the sort of second wave of British club culture. And so I, before I even moved down here, I used to come down every Wednesday night to go to Sherry's, And you'd hear records, you'd hear, you know, this sort of uh, Depeche Mode, 12-inch remixes and Human League stuff, but then you'd hear James Brown and Manu Dibango, and then this record came out called Planet Rock by Africa Bambaataa, which just all of us were like, "What the hell is this? Fantastic, beautiful electronic noise!" <laughs> so I just happened to be in the kind of in the right place, in the right time, at the right time when when electronic club music and culture was was really beginning to take hold outside yeah. of outside of the gaysa, because the other thing was. I used to go to the gay clubs and hear all the really cool records and then start playing them when I was DJing right. at the straight clubs. And they're going, What's this? What's this? What are these, you know, Bobby Orlando <laughs> records? And uh, yeah, I mean, those days, you know, the, the, the gay clubs were playing the really cool electronic music. And, and basically, what we now call House was kind of came out of the gay culture.
1: What do you put that down to? Is that the kind of connection with New York? That's yeah,
2: what? I mean, and. In those days, the the cutting I't know the cutting edge of music was always it led by predominantly black, gay uh, artists and DJs. I don't know how that started. I mean I, and this is one of the reasons why it took you know, another question I get asked a lot is like why did it take so long for the Americans to get EDM? right? Why did it take them like 30 years <laughs> to finally get it? And I said, well, there's two reasons. One is the in, one is the internet. Without access to the internet, you have to be over twenty-one to get into a club. So your five best clubbing years are over before you can even hear this music because it's not on the radio. You have to go to these clubs, and the secondly, this this music was predominantly black, gay music. So it was never going to get played on the radio. No. It was never going to become mainstream in America because it was, yeah, it was naughty and black and gay and repetitive, and they had that old disco sucks movement exactly. in, in, the, in the late seventies. And it was yeah, it was seen as, as, as kind of sinful Yeah
1: they suppressed the devil's time. music. Um you described, exactly why I liked it. <laughs> you described the scene at Sherry's there. The soundtrack is obviously very varied and one thing I'll associate with you is that you have such broad taste in music. You now you've brought together so many different styles in your career and um I mean what do you put that down to? Was it something at home? Was it where was this such an open minded taste come from? I think it was just the
2: the age that I grew up in the asia i grew up in if you wanted to dance you could either dance to sort of funk music or reggae music soul music well yeah funk soul or reggae you would, were there everything was a kind of melting pot of that and then they invented uh, electro and hip hop and then they invented house so the thing is djs can now grow up and only listen to house music all their lives. Yeah, I didn't. You know, when I there wasn't they hadn't invented house music when I was kind of learning about it. When and when I was starting to DJ, so you had to play different kinds of music because you could, there wasn't one music you could play all night. So I think it's that. I think it's coming from an age before.
1: So people were just less tribal back then. People were less like, I'm into soul. I mean, you did have that though. You know, people like, I'm fiercely into punk. Oh yeah, I
2: mean, you would have like Northern Soul Clubs and you would have, yeah, you you would have very specialist clubs, very small specialist clubs, but I kind of dipped my toe. That's a great thing about living in Brighton. I could dip my toe into all of them. You know, I could go to the gay clubs and pick up a bit from there. I could go to the Soul Clubs, pick up a bit from there. And um, yeah, I've, I've always been a bit of a musical magpie. And... I think also my approach to music has has always been it's got to have the right rhythm to make your hips move and the right hook to get ingrained in your head. And they're the only two real things you have to do. It's not like, you know, in, in rock music where there has to be a message to it or it has to have a structure or anything like this it's like if you've got a groove and a hook that's all you really need and, mo- and half of my records are just a groove and a hook so that's that kind of suits me fine and it's it's the things that i latched onto, whether it was listening to to funk records like james brown records establish a groove and then he shouts the same thing over and over again you know or whether it's that or um yeah i mean it just took it away from the idea that that pop music has to be complicated or have a message or a reason it's like the reason we go out is to to get high and get laid <laughs> it's purely about escapism you know it's purely about losing yourself in that moment and that collective euphoria and what you need for that is is something quite just tribal and basic yeah it doesn't want to be have too many lyrics that you're sitting listening and you know it's just it we to grab your hips and, and make you feel taken to another place.
1: Yeah. The music of Fatboy Slim, I definitely, uh, would associate with that kind of, you know, the week, uh, the weekends here. Let's go out. Let's, let's rave. Yeah. Let's it's, about, it's about, yeah. It. It's just about escapism. It. Exactly. Um, interestingly, like earlier in your career, I'm thinking about the House Martins. Like those, was, it was more political. The message mm. there. I mean, Fatboy Slim, I mean, it's, it kind of feels apolitical in a sense, but I guess just escapism is, is also a political act. You know, this is like, let's forget about.
2: No, no, it is, it is completely apolitical. Uh, okay. What I okay. do now. Um, I was young and in the house moments. I was young. I mean, Paul wrote all the lyrics. So, and he is a very, he still was sure. a very political man. And, but in those days, that that was what was driving a lot of us. Was it was like it was during the miners' strike and Thatcher was, you know, and horrible things were going on. So we were quite. I angry and we were quite idealistic and we thought we could change the world with pop music. Over my career I've kind of had that notion beaten out of me. It's like you can't change anything. You know, the, the Beatles tried it, you know, the Rolling Stones tried it, Bruce Springsteen tried it, you know you can't change the world with pop music and, it, I've, and I've yeah, I've, my, that idealism has just sadly died were you? and I've settled for, if I can make, make people dance and smile that's, that's
1: my role in life I mean, had you become less political as a person by the time Fatboy Slim started? Yes, I
2: think, I think when you're young, you believe you can do everything. Of course. You know, you know everything is possible. As you get older, the you know, the, the trials and tribulations of your of life start sapping that energy of believing you can do anything. And then as you get older, you think. Well, if I could just get out and <laughs> get <Yeah>. through today, <laughs> that'll be enough. So, and then, you know, and again, musically, uh, musically there was a time when I just wanted to make a, a record every single day. You know, that's, that's what woke me up in the morning. Right. And I was a workaholic. And that's why I ended up having four acts. Right. You know, when people say, why do you have so many pseudonyms? I'm like, they wouldn't. They wouldn't let me release enough records as one person. So I started releasing them as another person. And over the years, that's that's kind of, that's that's died out. When you have children, you don't have so much time. And, you know, that's the reason why young people make better records of than old people. Because they've got that fire and passion about what they want to say.
1: I wanted to touch on one thing about the Haas Martins. I read it on, a, on Wikipedia. It said that the bassist left on the eve of the first national tour. So Cook agreed to move to Hull to join them. Did you, so did you join that tour? You straight away, you moved up?
2: I, ju- I went to a gig uh, in New Cross expecting to watch the band because they were old friends and Paul was a really old friend of mine. They, they, as, soon as, I, as soon as I got there, when I told my name on the guest list, they said, oh, you've been instructed to go straight to the dressing room. I went to the dressing room and they said, right, you're playing bass tonight. Uh, you know half the songs because you've played them in the previous band with Paul. Right brush up on them and we'll try and teach you as many as we can between you know the next hour and I went and they played the first half of the set without a bass player and then they said and here's our new bass player and he only knows half the set and now we're going to play it with him I'd already already been in a band with Paul Heaton which was a kind of prototype of the house Martins when we were at school together so I there it wasn't it wasn't blind it was kind of I had history with them and a lot of the songs I knew because I played them in our previous band
1: was it your time with the House Martins that gave you that kind of taste for the stage? No, I'd always wanted to do that.
2: I'd always wanted. Um, I'd always wanted to be to do music and be famous. What? Since I saw Donny Osmond right when I was about eight, playing Crazy Horses, and he had uh, he had a, a piano with light bulbs that lit up when he played it, and he had a leather jacket with his name in studs in the back. I thought. I want a piece of that. That's what I want to do for a living. And so from eight years on, on, I was obsessed with pop music and told everyone I wanted to be a pop star. When I was about 14, punk came along. And at that point, I downgraded the kind of, I want to be famous and I want to be a superstar. And it was just, but now I but I definitely want to be in music. And even though I'm not the world's best musician, punk allows you to, to still contribute. And still make records, even though you're not a virtuoso, you know, pianist or guitarist right. or anything like that. So, yeah, no, I've always wanted to do music. The DJing side of it was a complete accident. Yep. Um, I don't know if you know the story of how I started DJing.
1: Or just when you were younger, you'd go and... I, always, I was the only
2: person in, in Rygate who had all the records. Yeah. I was a vinyl junkie and I had all the records. Because of that, I'd get invited to all the parties because there was no streaming. There was no... Of course, And if you didn't physically have the records, they didn't get played. So I would get invited to parties just so that I brought my records. But the records always used to get trashed. They used to get left lying around and vomiting fag butts on them. (laughs) So I I started saying, look, I'm not bringing my records to the parties anymore. And then one girl said, how about if I get my dad to, to hire these like Citronic double decks, you can be in charge of your records so you can... You know, you can make sure that they don't get damaged, and you can be like, you know, a disc jockey. And I said, "Yeah, okay, I'll try it." And I did, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. The crowd seemed to thoroughly enjoy it, and there was a kind of rapport. And I was, in, I was kind of hooked on the idea. Uh, but this was, this was playing punk rock records to people, so it was way before there was any idea of mixing or DJ culture or anything. It, but I did enjoy. The concept of playing your favourite records to other people and then getting having tons of fun, and you feeling like you've entertained the room.
1: When did the kind of more you know serious dance music mixing, beat matching, that whole thing kind of enter your world and become? A... When I
2: started going to Sherry's, right. When I started going to Sherry's. I started noticing that a lot of the records you couldn't tell where one right. ended and the other one started. This right. and then I'd read in. Magazines about this thing called segwaying, and <laughs> uh, they hadn't invented terms like beat matching or anything like that.
1: Segwaying, I like that.
2: And then I, yeah, I became quite obsessed. But obviously, you needed very speed decks. I had two decks, but they were belt driven. Yeah. And but I, someone, a, 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 a man called Barry Page, who is a, a quite a big DJ down in Brighton. When I first moved down here, he showed me how you could beat match by winding the spindle. And it was, it was a very, very, very <laughs> difficult art to do. And you could only do it with drums. You couldn't really do it in music because you could hear the music right. right. But you could, you could beat match like that. And then we suddenly... Then we heard about these, these decks called Technics 1200s, which had a very speed thing where you could actually beat match it. And I couldn't afford to buy any, but I would play any wine bar. Any, there was a wine bar where I played there every Monday night for free. Uh, I got free beer that was all and I played there every Monday just so I could practice on their turntables I would practice for hours and and then at one point I had I had one Technics and one Belt Driven and I could afford to buy one Technics (laughs) but you could still do it because you could always yeah yeah you actually only need one set of various (laughs) things that's true and yeah it was a um, and it was and it was really exciting times because you know you would do a mix and people on the dance floor were going hold on how, did, how does that happen? I'm now dancing to a different record. I didn't even notice. Or I'm I'm dancing to two records at once, and yeah, it was it was quite a, a neat trick to have. And then things like scratching and things, things that people kind of take for granted now. In those days, you really could you know have the whole dance floor kind of just look up and go, "What the? How the hell are you doing that?" Uh,
1: was there like a was there a group of you doing this? Did you have other people into it? Were you like sharing music? Or-
2: yeah, there was a very small group of people who were doing it. And and bizarrely enough, I got invited into that group because, because when I was in the House Martins, they did documentary on us and part of the documentary was what do you do in your spare time? Tar- you know, what's your hobby? And I said I took them up to my bedroom and I've got my one techniques and one belt different thing and I'm mixing mixing. And all the other DJs uh, who were doing that, when I did, when I left the House Martins and you know indie pop and started making dance music, rather than going, oh, you have switched from indie pop. You went, you were the one in the House Martins who was who had two who was scratching and mixing years ago, you know. And a lot of people like Ashley Beadle and Cold Cut and Tim Simenon and, um, and all those people, when I, when I left the House Martins and started. Uh, remixing DJing none of them questioned my motives because they all knew that I was doing it before so that was that was that was uh and and then they were and it was a very small select bunch of people who were doing it and we used to you know share it was like how do, you, how do you do that or or we would be if we had something you know if we had a record that no one else had we'd put we'd cover the label nice. we used to do a lot of sticking label you know covering over so that yeah, no one yeah. knew what record that was there was no shazam <laughs> And you'd have other DJs coming out like trying to look over your shoulder of what record was playing. So yeah, we were sort of half helping each other out, but certain things were, it's like if, if you had if you had a record that nobody else knew what it was even called, then you could play that for six months and people would come, you know, people would come to see you just because yeah. they knew that you had yeah. that record. The idea of rarity and, and that, you know, for kids nowadays is, is, is difficult to explain. Yeah, The idea that people that... People would come just to see. I remember Andy Weatherall doing an interview, going, "I would travel hundreds of miles to hear one DJ play a record, and I knew what record you know. There was like three records he had that I didn't know what they were, and and, and nobody else had them. And I would have travel just to hear him play them.
1: So, when dance music entered your life, did you did it totally take over? Were you like you just that was your new thing? That was the bug? No. Uh,
2: uh, At first, it was a hobby. Basically, I when I. I was in a band with Paul Heaton when I was doing my A-levels. I failed them uh, because I was spending too much time in a band with Paul Heaton. (laughs) And so I had to decide whether I kind of left home and pursued a pop career straight away. Or my parents said, if you give up being in pop bands, we'll support you for the next three years if you want to go to college. Right. Uh, That meant I could move to Brighton and didn't have to pay rent for the next three years. So I took that option. But, it, but I had promised them I wouldn't be in a band all the time that I was in there. But I hadn't promised them I wouldn't DJ. Yeah. And so I'd now moved to the nightclub capital of the South Coast. And by the end of my degree, I was DJing five nights a week. But but in those days, DJing was a hobby. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a career. You didn't get paid enough. I was DJing five nights a week, and I still had to work in a record shop part-time to pay the rent. In those days, we weren't. We were. We were just below the glass collector in the food chain in the nightclub. We were sometimes in a different room, just looking through a serving hatch. We were. We didn't have monitors. We weren't. You know, if you asked ask, ask for monitors, they go shut up. Why would you want monitors? It's like, well, sorry, I can. not well, I'm try to beat match, it's like there's a time delay from the speakers over there. They went, oh, get over it, you know. So. It, it, DJing was a career. It, it was something that Train Spot of Vinyl Junkies did. Yeah. And it wasn't glamorous. We never got any women or fame or money or any of the things that, that, that might attract DJs these days.
1: When was it that that, that that changed that you thought, hang on, I could do this for a, for a career?
2: Um, it was when I was. When I started to be Fatboy Slim. I was... At that point, I was still Pizza Man the guitarist and producer and songwriter of Freak Power and the Mighty Dubcats. Yeah. And I was on tour. I did a really long tour with Freak Power and there's 13 of us in a smelly tour bus and we're worried every night if we were going to have enough people to, you know, to to make it work. You know, sometimes we now outnumber the audience. And and that, that whole kind of paying your dues on the road. And then while I'd be there, every few days I'd get a message going, oh, tripping on Sunshine, you know, Sex on the Streets just went in at number 15. After the end of that tour, I was quite sort of burnt out on... And I was just a crap guitarist anyway. <laughs> but all the while I'd been DJing in in just in local clubs in Brighton. And then I just started getting these... When the Fatboy Slim shows started taking off, uh, Fatboy Slim records started taking off, I'd get gigs as Fatboy Slim. And... Realised that more people would come to see me DJ as Fatboy Slim than would come to see Freak Power as a band. I didn't have to split it thirteen ways, travel around a tour bus. I could just get a train up, and people, and I, and then I realised I was meant to be a DJ, not a bass player or a guitarist. Uh, I'm a much better DJ. When I, when, you know, I get, and you know, people like it when I DJ. And by then. I could, you know, before I could only DJ in Brighton because the amount I got paid wouldn't cover my train fare up to London and back, so I couldn't play outside of Brighton really. But by then, now you could play in London, and then there was you know, you, occasionally you could go up north and stuff like that. And I just found that I realised that it was it was it's much easier just DJing rather than rehearsing with a band, especially a band where you are. I was kind of the Andrew Ridgeley right. of the band. Uh, and i was only it's only because i produced and wrote the songs that <laughs> he even allowed me on stage and they were great musicians and i was always holding them back and i just thought you know why why am i doing attempting that when i've got records in the charts and uh, as you know doing dance music and it was around the time of the of, of, of dance music exploding into the charts and and all of a sudden no one wanted to be in a band anymore they no wanted to be a dj and i'm like I've already got the chops and I've paid my dues for the 15 years doing this. So why don't I do this?
1: Yeah. It's amazing because your first album is Fatboy Slim Better, Living Through Chemistry, came out in 1996. So you were 33 when that came out. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's, I guess it's slightly old to know. you kind of assumed that you would. Yeah. It, you know it had what taken I mean? me,
2: I'd been 11 years. Yeah. In the industry. In the industry, being in bands and DJing as a hobby. Yeah, a I hadn't realised that I, I should have been a DJ, not a bass player. Uh, but B, like I said, being a DJ wasn't it, a career. Yeah, it wasn't an option unless, unless you had a radio show. Uh, I don't think any, you know, there were any DJs who didn't have a day job.
1: Well, maybe one springs to mind. I wanted to ask you about him, and that's Carl Cox. So he, he's got the Brighton connection. You guys are yeah. We,
2: he he was a, a tremendous influence on me. He was a, the mentor when I first moved to Brighton. He was the Don. Right. He was the king of. Uh, he, so what, what year
1: would that have been? That I means? eighty-two. I eighty-two. Okay, he was the Don then. Wow.
2: Yeah, he was, and he was already playing on three decks. Yeah. And we would stand there and just watch a gape. And then he heard me play, and I think he uh, he gave me some mixing lessons and oh, nice. got me some gigs. And then yeah, we and and, I th- and we tried to make a tune together. <laughs> I mean, that was the thing. He was he he was a don of DJing but I had by the time I'd left the House Martins I'd used the money to build a recording studio so I had a studio yeah. and he had a sound system so I would use his sound system and he would use my studio so yeah no we tried making a record deal and it didn't quite work but no we've been firm friends since then and but even he even in those days he ran a record shop yeah during the day he, you know he even you know even Carl Cox had to have a day job <laughs> because he didn't get paid enough
1: to you I oh know he lives in Brighton Do you guys hang out much
2: We don't hang out we don't go out for dinner and <laughs> hang out hang out but we are always doing shows together If if I'm doing a big show I and and we need a I need a big yeah a big some big second on the bill he's always my first choice if he's available um I've been playing for him at Space for years Yeah we keep in touch we keep in touch DJ wise and we still, he's one of the few DJs I'll, I'll play back to back with. Right. That I've, you know, that I trust enough to do that with.
1: What is that about him? That
2: Just because we've grown up together musically and we trust, you know, I just trust him. I, I know what he's doing <laughs> and why he's doing it. And I can communicate with him without shouting in his ear, I'm going to do this. I'm like, little drop, you know, just like eye contact. Someone you know well enough musically and, and personally to...
1: One thing you guys definitely have in common is that, um, you know, Cox, you both have this performance element to your DJing and interacting with the crowd. I mean, Cox was always on the mic and yeah, it was just a, it's kind of a similarity there.
2: Well, like I said, he, he was my mentor. I've always acknowledged that, that my DJing style is basically ripped completely (laughs) off. Carl Cox and John Carter. Okay. It was Carl Cox's um, communication with the audience and, looking like he was having more fun and he was more into the music than the crowd were. rather than standing there going you all like this it's like i really like this and i think you might do too uh between that and john carter's swagger <laughs> and showmanship and yeah the, the arm waving and and really really hyping the crowd up yeah i basically i they were my two favorite djs and i would watch them and and, and my DJing style evolved
1: out of those two. Was that... And I, I, I openly admit that. Sure. And have told Carl a million times. That performance element, was it always a part of your DJing, right like from the word go? No.
2: No, A, because in those days no one could see you because you, right. you weren't above the crowd. But no, as one fa- re- no one really cared. You were just the bloke in the corner playing records.
1: But as Fatboy Slim?
2: as By the time we got to Fatboy Slim, it, it all really kicked off with the Big Beat Boutique. Yeah. But... Because Big Beat Boutique had this devil-may-care-wild abandon where they in, the crowd encouraged me to do stupid things and I then in turn encouraged the crowd to do more stupid things and this vicious circle of stupidity and abandon established itself. Yeah, it was the boutique. It was having my own residency, playing to my, to, to my mates and, and other people, but playing to the same crowd every week and feeling confident that they knew me and them encu- them just encouraging me to be stupider every week to take more musical risks to be more outrageous in my behavior whilst I was DJing. And like I said, it was a two way street. I was, in, I was, I would then encourage them and, you know, fish were thrown about and <laughs> clothes were taken off and, and yeah. Uh, luckily we, we, we the, the manager of the club let us get away with murder. How often were those parties? That was every fortnight in between I would play the social one, one Friday and then the boutique the next Friday. Right. So I ping pong between the, the heavenly social and, and the heavenly
1: socials in London. Yeah. And that's where the chemical brothers were residents. Yeah. Right. And it was a kind of similar thing going on there.
2: Yeah. Well, that was, that was it. like you said about small groups of people. Uh, at that point, how everybody was playing house. i got a bit bored of house and I had these weird records that I'd, I'd play chip-hop records at 45, I'd play Acid records at 33, um, and and it it's just this weird mix of things, and I remember hearing Defunct by Daft Punk the first time, and that was for me, it was like, that's what music should sound like, not all the, you know, it was, it was very much handbag, girly house, very commercial, and so I was kind of going back to my love of, of, of hip-hop and breakbeats, and Acid House and all the thinking about all the things that I liked and being more eclectic um, and the, but this was all happening back at my house after the clubs I, I wasn't really getting many The House DJ, of Love yeah The House of Love I wasn't getting many DJing bookings doing that <laughs> and then Lindy Layton who had been the singer in Beats International she phoned me up and she said you know that music you play when, you, when we go back to your house after clubs she said there's this club in London called the Heavenly Social where they're playing exactly the same thing as you. And I was like, really? He said, yeah, you should come on. So I, I walked in and Tom and Ed were playing um, Santa Cruz, the first Fatboy Slim single. And I walked up to them and went, this is me. They went, you're Fatboy Slim? <laughs> and I went, yeah. And, and they were like, oh. yeah, you know, and, and I instantly had this new family, John Carter, Richie Fearless, uh, Tom and Ed, And we all had come up with this amalgamation of having grown up with The Beatles, then had punk rock, then had rap, then had Acid House, and decided, why not put all four of them into one melting pot and see what comes out, break some musical rules, get really trashed to the point where you could put pretty much anything on, and if it was stupid, you'd get away with it. And that suited me fine, and uh, so I became... A, a regular at the, the social and there was another the big kahuna burger that was another one at smithfields and but it meant i that we had to drive up and more importantly driving back was sometimes <laughs> an issue and the whole reason that we started the boutique down here was because so we didn't have to drive up to london every weekend Right. and it was at one point it was going to be called the social on sea right um, because it was, we just wanted to do what the Heavenly Social was doing. I mean, we, again, I totally acknowledge that that our blueprint, we were ripping off what was happening at the Heavenly Social. Um, not necessarily ripping off what Tom and Ed were doing, because we'd been, they'd been doing it in Manchester and I'd been doing it in Brighton and we just hadn't met yet. Um, but in terms of, of, of having a club that that had no rules, musically, dress code, behaviour, <laughs>
1: That, that that was definitely we got from the heavenly social, of course. From big beat boutique came big beat. It's interesting. I mean, it's funny to think of this this music being played in a small club because obviously this is like stadium sized music. Just in terms of the content,
2: oh, I works just as well in a in a scout <laughs> hut, which was the original. But the original boutique was it was actually we called it the scout hut. It had a really low ceiling. It only held about three hundred and fifty people. No, it work, It works just as well in small places as big. Can I just say, by the way, yeah. that house music was named after the Warehouse Club in Chicago. Garage music was named after the Paradise Garage. Yeah. You can only imagine how chuffed I was when it <laughs> was named after our club, because until then, we we it was the it was the it was the the genre with no name. Right. I think I think Tom and Ed put out a compilation called Trip, Ho- Trip Hop, no Brit Hop, and Tripno, <laughs> and then it was. Ch- chemical beats we called it at one point but yeah uh, some journalist coined big beat
1: i mean how helpful was it from a kind of press point of view and a marketing point of view for having just a sound that you could you know ride the way with? it
2: was fantastic for the for the the two years that, that it was groundbreaking and growing and we were aware that something quite special was happening we used to go and have a drink a pre-drink just around the corner from the boutique and we used to have a joke that it was time to go in when the queue got round the corner, when we could see the queue come round the corner. And then the queue just was getting bigger every week and journalists were coming down and we were aware that something, you know, that we were part of this wave and, you know, it felt like our cavern club. It was like this tiny little place and suddenly Japanese tourists are coming, you know, and can't get in and things like that. That was the most exciting thing about it. But sadly... The whole basis of Big Beat was there's no formula there. There's no rules. You could just break any rule. And the only thing really that, that, that it has in common is a Big Beat. Yeah. Uh, sadly, what happened was once we became popular, there was all this copycat stuff that then established a sound called Big Beat, which actually became formulaic, which is exactly what we were trying to destroy. Yeah. So there was literally a day where I think me and Tom and Ed went on a holiday together where well, a whole bunch of us went on holiday together and we had a discussions about all these horrible big beat records. It's like, we don't want to be associated with that anymore. And it's like, what's your next album going to be like? And it's like nothing like big beat. And what's your next album? be? They, they were telling me I, I need to work with guest vocalists. Right. They said, that's how you could develop after you've come a long way, baby. And, I was going. I said, "Just get away, get get off the big beat bandwagon, you know, or get off the good shit big beat because it's going to go down soon." Because it was, it, it just became a formula, and it's it's kind of, it was horrible, really, because the whole idea was to break the rules and, and break the formulas, and, and it became a formula, and so, and I've spent a lot of the rest of my career trying to live that down. <laughs> a lot of people who haven't heard me DJ say, oh, yeah, you know, Norman, you know, I respect Norman for what he does, but I can't stand the music he plays. <laughs> and but it's like, when did you last hear him? Because if you've, if you've heard him in the last 15 years, he does not play big, big Beat records.
1: So, I mean, what did you do? How did you, what was the next next direction? Next direction was, I, I kind of went back, back to Interesting House. At that point,
2: I think Big Beat kind of burst the, the handbag house bubble and I think, and upset the apple cart of the the house producers that were just churning out the same stuff and I think it made them think more about what they were doing and records like Born Slippy came out Underworld were Underworld were kind of yeah sort of listening to what Big Beat was doing is like oh, we can take this you know what take this into a house thing and I think yeah I think we kind of we, we scared a few people and kicked a few butts and got and, and Daft Punk I mean then Daft Punk came along and revolutionized um, the house music made house music interesting again and different and groundbreaking and like i said the first time i heard daft punk it was dimitri from delight played at the escape club in brighton and he dropped um the funk and that was the first time i've heard it and i I was like i've never heard a record like this it's an acid house record at 110 bpm with this really catchy hook that i can't stop singing and nothing really happens in it. And, you know, uh, yeah. And, and that was, the, that was, that was kind of, and and it's like, that's exactly how music should be. So yeah, I mean, I think Big Beat kicked dance music up the arse and then Daft Punk then kicked
1: it further. It kicked the house music up the arse. So when you've left Big Beat behind or you're trying to kind of distance yourself from it, what then happens to your relationship with those classic Fat Boy Slim Big Beat records?
2: I I keep the acapellas of them and I start putting them over house records. <laughs> I never play them in their original form anymore. Why not? Because it because it, it, it doesn't fit into my set tempo wise, uh, style wise. I would get really bored. I you know I when I'm when I DJ I, I my job as a DJ is to play the best music possible, not inflict my my music on people all night or promote my new album or something like that. I play the, best. but as a as a DJ with a history of making records, if I didn't nod to the fact, nod to Praise You and Right Here, Right Now, they might feel cheated. So I always play Right Here, Right Now, and Praise You or Weapon of Choice or something in some f- shape or form. But I would get, be so bored if I'd played yeah, it in exactly. its original form. And it's more fun to, you know, every year I do a new different mashup.
1: Um, something I've always thought about you, you know. talk about the chemical brothers there and then thinking about prodigy basement jacks like these are acts who've created a kind of big live show and they've played their hits and And sold albums and sold albums well as you
2: have yeah but dance music never did that no of course of course when when they were talking about releasing better living through chemistry i'm like oh don't bother dance music doesn't sell (laughs) albums you know and it was in fact it was a kind of greatest hits i think we put seven single seven fat boys singles out and they're like, look, if you could just do two more tracks, we've got to bang it out as an album. But no, The Prodigy, I, we have to thank. They were the first dance music act that made a, 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 an album that sold.
1: But was it never tempting for you or was it never on the table for you to create a big live show and play your hits and make, make a band or do something live on stage rather than no, just a No,
2: I was forced into that by circumstance. I was forced into that by the success of the records, meaning that I was being put on bigger and bigger stages. And I actually remember the moment I played Tea in the Park. I can't remember which year. But I played Tea in the Park and I was like top of the bill in a tent after the Foo Fighters or something like that. And there's just me. I've got my, me and my manager, no <laughs> on Ferrari, no anything. And I look and it's like a 40-foot walk across a, an empty stage to a table with two record players and a mixer on it. And I'm like, and, and 20,000 mental screaming, lunatic Glasgow audience, you know what they're like, all go, here we, here we, here we fucking go, you know. And I was like, all I've got is this table and a set of decks and me trying to, you know, try to follow the Foo Fighters. How the hell am I going to do this? And so I just, on the walk to the stage, they all started cheering and I started waving my arms around, around the air. They started waving their arms around the air. So I started kind of really showboating
1: right.
2: and trying to make myself as big as possible and project myself as big as possible. Um, my manager calls it my James Brown moment. He was like that, you know. I felt like you would come and put in the cape on you and then you'd fall to the ground and you know, I'd put the cape on you again. And so that was when the kind of razzmatazz. But obviously, having been in a pop band, I had a certain stage craft. I kind yeah. of knew how to get an audience going. And then... From then it was just getting put on the stages that side. It's like, look, we've got to raise our game. We can't just have a table with two record players on it and a bloke waving his arms around. So that's where the visual element came in. The first time we did the beach, we had the, the Channel Four had built a screen there to show the cricket. That was the whole reason we were there in the first place. We were the after party for All the right. test match. <laughs> but but sixty five thousand people turned up and it became, you know, people forgot about the cricket and then the idea of using visuals um to augment the show uh came then one day in japan they had a a projection a projection screen with my cd cover in front of it projecting my cd cover as a backdrop and mark jones bless him you know do you know mark jones from wall of sound
1: uh, he rings about legendary figure always in, at IMS. in the old days
2: well he well Wall of Sound had the propeller heads and John Carter and Monk, Monk, Monkey Naffier the guy dressed in pink now always dressed in pink yeah, yeah. he's a very he's a very colourful character yeah he was the first person who had the idea to take my CD that was propped up and insert a piece of paper that he'd written something on that suddenly became huge written <laughs> up in big letters and I can't remember what, he wrote you, me, none of the lads t- big tandoori <laughs> Which the Japanese can't read English, but it made us laugh. And then we realised that we could write slogans and put them on the screen. So then that whole, my shtick of writing on the record sleeves and writing messages to the crowd. Um, it was years before we could actually have anything that synced with the records because yeah. obviously no one ever knew what I was going to play next or what speed I was going to play it at. So we, my visuals guy would just put visual, generic visuals up, but nothing actually... Tallied with the records,
1: um, but yeah, until I
2: mean, Serato Video SL. Right.
1: Yeah, as you said, you you played plenty of big stages. You headlined the other stage at Glastonbury just as a DJ. Well, by then, well,
2: then I thought, let's really up the game. Then we built the right the cube that yeah. I was inside. I was inside the visuals, of course. But again, you're suspended still, in midair.
1: You're still just DJing, which you know is there are I don't think any other. DJ I am still is just ever. DJing. No, no, but to <laughs> this I, day,
2: I am still just DJing. But I don't
1: think any. Any other actors ever headlined the other stage just DJing. You know, it's not, there aren't, it's, it's, it's a, it's a stage for a live act in that respect. So it's, it's yeah, like, I suppose so, yeah. it's like pre, you know, it's the, the, well, the, I, I
2: ended up in a lot of places where I was the first person to DJ. Then. Yeah, sure. And yeah, so this, you know, I needed to up my game. And yeah. there were certain times when I, I kind of thought this isn't, this isn't worthy.
1: But this is the original model of the, what became the kind of EDM blueprint because that is, just a DJ as a headline act and the show and you know yeah
2: and the DJs have to now become younger and better looking and the sex symbols and things like that which we never that didn't used to bother us yeah you could be as 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 old grey fat bald as you wanted because no one could really see you and that was one of the attractions of being the DJ was that we were we we, you're not you don't feel exposed because there's always the decks between you and the crowd or, or you're in a little booth so you always feel quite safe you don't feel like the lead singer that's got to always be, you know, performing. And a lot of DJs in those days were nerdy train spotters, Um, but great DJs. Now you have to be more of a personality. You have to be good looking. You have to have a shtick. You have to jump up and shout at people and stuff like that, Um, which is great. It's taking, you know, it's taking the idea of, uh, of what we do to, uh, to a more populist commercial yeah. Um, boundary I mean some for some too commercial
1: yeah a lot of the time well it became but it became packaged what you were doing still felt very raw and you were the first person doing it and it felt playful and wild and yeah whereas what these guys are doing is slightly more well the thing I think that,
2: I think that probably the difference between us is that we never took ourselves seriously exactly, yeah. <laughs> for us it was like let's see how stupid we could be and if we're going to do a grand gesture it's like in the name of spinal tap <laughs> you know it, we're going to build a stonehenge but it's you know with our t- tongue firmly in our cheek i think some of the edm djs actually believe yeah. you know, they're rock stars we just we just behave like rock stars because we it was an excuse to what impact did the edm
1: explosion have on your career in america
2: my career in america by that point was pretty much dead in the water because they'd like big beat but then when i i wandered, when i abandoned big beat and went back to house they i stopped having hits and Americans got quite short memories. When EDM came along, they were like, oh, he, he he's a big DJ. Let's get him over. And so initially I did play Ultra and things like that. And I'm like, you know what? This isn't really me. And I, for a few years, I tried to keep up with the young uns and what they were doing. And I tried to keep it, you know, as big and brash as EDM was without being EDM. But, then one year ultra i played carl's structure rather than the main stage and i'm like you know what i'm so much happier in playing to to my age group and my crowd and people who understand dance music rather than you know the edm crowd so i've kind of bowed out of that i also at that point there were so many other things going on in brazil and japan and places i mean i'm i'm more popular in brazil than i am in england and why is that? I don't know. They just really, I, I just happened to be there at the right time. They've always loved dancing. And yeah. Dancing is, is a much more part of Brazilian culture. It's the way they celebrate everything, and it's, it, and, and, and it's so part of it. And the, the, the kind of Brazilian rhythm is quite similar to house rhythm. And I was just the, 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 the DVD of Brighton Beach for some reason, just took off in Brazil. It sold more copies in Brazil than it did in the whole rest of the world put together. And they, just everyone used to put it on in their house before they went out clubbing. And I just became a household name. So then they said, can you do a big beach in in Rio? So we did one there and that was bigger than the one in Brighton. That's they... 360,000. that went out live on the telly. And I just became, I was just the, the first <laughs> wave of, you know, superstar DJs.
1: Did the Brazilians know what had happened in Brighton in 2002? Did they have a... Yeah, no, no, they watched it over and over again. And over and over again, to a point of
2: some nights, you know, people would moan that I hadn't played Super Styling. I'm like, right. it's not actually my record. And they're like, yeah, we yeah, can't well, it I mean, technically it's not your record, but it's from the Big Beach 2 video, which is what everybody knows. And yeah, there were certain records like Super Styling that, uh starling and it just won't do Tim Deluxe right. that I would get lynched if I didn't play because it was like it would be like the Rolling Stones not playing
1: satisfaction. Was there a process of okay, this is what happened in 2002. A lot more people than we expected came down. We want to do it in Brazil. We need to learn from those mistakes and take it. Over we learned from mistakes in terms of crowd control and expecting numbers
2: and being prepared because we were flying by the seat of our pants with the second big beach here day. A lot of people could have yeah. died if that had gone wrong. Do
1: you put that? Do you put that down to kind of just underestimating how popular you were? Yeah,
2: underestimating how popular I was. The how much the word of mouth of uh, the success of the first one had gone. The fact that it was the first sunny day of the year and um, Chris Moyles had decided to talk about how he was going to it all week on Radio One. And it was a, it was a, it was a kind of perfect storm. It was like the Woodstock moment where. We were just caught with our pants down. We didn't expect. We, we, we the first one, there was 65,000 and I'd had all these meetings with the police and they're like, don't worry, we've got contingency plans that go up to 110,000 people. Imagine that, you know, we've got enough spotters on roofs and crowd control barriers and medical centers and everything for 110,000 people and quarter of a million turn up. The roads are blocked all the way up, back up to Crawley. That every off licence in Brighton sells out of every bit of alcohol they've got. There's not enough toilets. The, stream, the streets are s- streaming with piss, and it, you know it's like well, it, it was that moment, that moment where it's like we've lost control of this now. The only the only reason it happened was because we decided it was more dangerous for it not to happen. Yeah. That amount of people that drunk on the streets having a riot could have destroyed our my home city. <laughs> Um, no, yeah, no, we learned we learned those mistakes. So when we did it in Brazil, we had adequate. We had three mobile hospitals going down the beach. We had relay towers so everyone could hear and see the music. Uh, and we knew we knew to expect an awful amount of people. And the Brazilians are used to doing that. They've had the Rolling Stones and you know they've had quarter of a million people. But yeah, we reckon it was three hundred and sixty thousand people there, and it went out live on telly. And so from from that day, I became a household name and synonymous with this is what DJ culture is and we like it and give us some more.
1: I mean, this is a difficult question, but what does it feel like to play to 360,000 people? Absolutely petrifying. Absolutely
2: petrifying, especially because in those days, I still, there was still just a table and two decks. If the, the record jumped, you felt like a numpty... I don't think we even had any visuals. Uh, It was me really trying to put on a show to the, you know, the biggest crowd with the least equipment, the least tools or weaponry. I felt outgunned. I felt really, really petrified, but immediately felt the love from the Brazilian crowd and that got us through it. I mean, technically it was probably not a very good show at all, but it was a great occasion. And, and it's begat everything that's, that's happened since the number of Brazilian DJs I've met who said, you're the reason that I'm a DJ. I mean, that all around the world. That's one of my, the things I'm proudest of, of my kind of legacy within dance music is the number of people who said, you're the reason that I became a DJ. You know, I, I liked, I liked heavy metal and then I saw you and thought, actually, that's more fun than heavy metal. Or, you know, I was a guitarist and then I, then, then I wanted to become a DJ. So they're, 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 they're the kind of notches on my bedpost. Every time someone says that to me, I just go to my tour manager, ka-ching, <laughs> yes. Um, another one bites. another one, another one, another soul.
1: <laughs> of course, shows like that made you very famous. And A Celebrity is an interesting one with you because actually originally you shied away from yeah. from associating yourself with the Fat Boy Slim Monica. But then, of course, things blew up and you became very much in the public eye. Um, what's your relationship like with celebrity now do you think like how you how do you feel about it i'm
2: I've, I've still it's never been why i wanted to do this uh it's it's but at the same time it's i'm not saying it's a necessary evil it's just part of the job it's something that that has good points and bad points you do you and your mates get in free to clubs and things like that and, you know, and people, tons of people are nice to you and do things for you. On the downside, if you if you do anything bad, it ends up in the papers. If you have marital troubles, it becomes everybody's business. Um, so there's ups and downs. I think I was lucky because until then, I'd kind of kept under the... I, I've managed to sort of not get dropped in at the deep end. I started with the house mines, at mines where we were really anti-fame and then gone fac- the faceless DJing route where no one knew I was Pizza Man. No one knew that I was the Mighty Dub Cats. No one knew I was I was Fat Boy Slim at first. But by the time I cocked it up by having really big hits and marrying Zoe Ball, by the time I cocked it up, I was kind of ready ready for, su- for success. I mean, that's one of the things about EDM DJs now. There's 18-year-olds who have been suddenly thrust into a lifestyle where they're everything's on the platform, where they're famous and and i worry for them because they haven't learned the pitfalls uh and some some of them i worry about their behavior it's like i you know i took 20 years before i got
1: what you're being given now you know when things aren't going so well in the in the public eye what's it like living inside that inside that bubble
2: i never complain i never complain because you live by the sword you die by the sword if i didn't have the press i wouldn't have all this so it's a price I have to pay
1: one thing I did want to ask you about which was uh, a funny one when the son ran that story saying that you were burial oh yeah in 2008 um, it was just as he was approaching he'd been nominated for the Mercury Music Prize and they they. I bet he was so pissed off about it <laughs> it was either you or Aphex Aphex twin yeah I think did the Sun approach you at all
2: no I, 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 I heard that somebody said no I think one well, of my friends actually believed it <laughs> All my friends thought I was burial. Um, it was only just because I had been quite famous for pseudonyms. Um, but again, this is a pre-internet age where you could you could release records for years and no one ever knew what you looked like. You weren't in the mainstream press. You weren't making pop videos. You weren't doing anything that would would make you famous. So you could you could just be whoever you, you wanted to be. And uh, yeah, and burial could be burial. And probably the only thing that ever stopped him being buried was the 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 shame of being me, (laughs) the shame of everyone thinking he was me. Well, I think the only
1: thing that would would force him to—I think that story, uh, yeah, forced him to come out and say,
2: "Just, I'm not." Please not that. Please don't not that.
1: (laughs) Um, How has I just like to apologise (laughs) publicly to him, by the way, for that. How has the fame game changed for you since the rise of the internet and mobile phones and selfies and all that kind of thing? Is it more annoying now? It used to be. It's selfies can get
2: annoying if there's after you know, after a certain amount of time or selfies. Because before people go, shake your hand and say, I like what you do, or go, Oh, I'd love to get an autograph. I wish I had a pen. <laughs> Sadly, we haven't, <laughs> or I wish I had my camera with me. Uh, um, now you do get clocked by everyone, and I don't mind doing it, but there's a point where. I, uh, I've got this look that I give my tour manager and he says, Norm, we really need you in the dressing room now. Oh, nice. And so, that side of it is nice. I mean, I like to keep it at a level of fame where I'm recognised by people who like me. It's really nice. It really is. A, it's, it's wonderful when someone comes up to you in the street and goes, no, we could. I'd just like to shake your hand. I lost my virginity to your record or I met your my wife at one of your gigs or something like that. Things like that really, that really. That never gets old. Or you're the reason I, I started making music or something like that. The downside of it is where people recognise you whether they like you or not. And you can walk past the building site and feel go, like, Oh, hey, my ah oh, You still get that? Or where's the wife or you know? Uh Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not not so much. I've, I mean, I've spent since me and Zoe got together. I quickly worked that one out, and since then, both me and Zoe have attempted to stay out. You know, we've never thought it. We've never done OK Magazine. We've never done reality TV or anything like that. We do. We, you know, we try and keep ourselves within the parameters of the job we do. We try and keep ourselves out of, you know, high street fame, which on the whole works. Like I said, I'm, I do. I'm, I hate it when people go, oh, oh, it's hideous being famous. It's so, it's just ruined my life. You know, I, I would never complain about it because because the the upside is, is so rewarding. And just the fact that I'm 53 years old and I've never had to do an honest day's work <laughs> in my life. I've been able to do what I would do as a hobby and get paid for it and never have to, you know, never have to pluck chickens.
1: You mentioned that... Uh Certain memories are a bit hazy for you because there were a lot of kind of long stint of hedonistic years for you. I mean, how long have you been sober now? Eight years. Eight years. When was the peak of your partying? Probably
2: about seven years ago. (laughs) Uh, No, sorry, sorry, a year, not seven years, yeah. No, a year before I gave up. Uh, No, I've always been, I've always been a partier. Uh, Probably around the time when Fatboy Slim got really big. Uh, it's interesting because most people was, are trying,
1: starting to wind down around that time it's like
2: well no it was probably it was sort of between in my, my 30s yeah I was really I mean someone described me as always the Posh and of the chemical generation <laughs> um, but yeah no we were we were we were enjoying everything we could until it started to not be fun anymore and hurt more and as I got older and then and then I started worrying about my health and was in the end happy to stop doing it, knowing that I'd left no stone unturned. I've got no regrets. It's like, I wish I'd just done oh God, actually I did
1: <laughs> um I've heard you say that drugs brought out your creative side
2: Yeah, I think they do. I think they I think certain drugs uh, do unlock a part of your brain that is suppressed the the kind of infantile. Or absurd or surreal part of your brain that a lot of the time you suppress because it's infantile and absurd and surreal.
1: So, for spe- specifically for making music, would you you would have certain drugs that you'd take just because it brought out a certain side I'd of you? I never
2: take drugs while I was actually doing it. Okay. It would be the the general thing would be taking drugs over the weekend whilst DJing and then having the after party, and then come Sunday, not being really able to do very much like drive a car or anything like that and but i could still operate the studio and i would have all these memories and ideas and vibes just going through my head from the weekend and so sort of sunday monday tuesday wednesday i would get them all down on on tape and that would then you know become the soundtrack for for the next weekend
1: when was the turning point did you realize something had to change
2: when, when I realized that bits starting to fall off, what
1: I, you say, Do you mean, or
2: no, just, physically, yeah, <laughs> well, probably mentally as well. Yeah. Um, it was, it was I mean, you're times, were getting longer and longer, you're having to, when, you, when you're out, you're having to do more each day to cover up that you were still hurting from the day before. And just by then, I had a son, uh, and me and Zoe both at the same, fairly much at the same time, just said. You know what, this is this isn't funny anymore. Just you know, and, and one of us is gonna get ill or or it's gonna start acting out, you know, he we was still young to realise what was going on. But changing yeah, and mean, we just you know, decided it's enough. I've done enough. I never wanna be, you know, a poster boy for surprise and go, oh, no. I don't know. Oh, it's, it's all of being at one with your audience you have to be on the same wavelength and luckily I've found a way of doing that sober I, I get as high as them yeah. just, I there's just maybe it's just kind of there's so much shit still rattling around in my brain it doesn't take much for it to, to come out again because well I do definitely become a different person I've become an irresponsible 17 year old party lunatic when on stage
1: was it a case that you just you never wanted to stop? It just wanted to carry on and on and on.
2: Yeah, it, yeah. I suppose so. Yeah. Over the years, I'd built up a a, a, a dependency on it. And
1: that's do you feel I like do you feel like addiction or abuse, however you want to term it? Was is it something that's not talked about enough in dance music? Is it was it more prevalent than people might like to think, or like might to accept?
2: I think for most people, addiction takes time. Yeah, you have to do something for. 10, 20 years mm. before it becomes so much part of your routine so it's probably not talked about by your 18, 19, 20 year old DJ superstars it's probably talked to more about people from my generation of actually you know what I think I've got a knock on the head before. I mean do you I have or, a- I think, or I think I've got a problem you know so many DJs Sadly, again, because I'm tabloid fodder, when I went into rehab, it was on, you know, in the mm, papers. Mm. A lot of DJs I know have quietly... And that's what I was thinking, to yeah. rehab. Yeah. Um, but, you yeah, know, there's... It's... Like tinnitus, it's an occupational hazard. You do this for long enough, eventually there, is, there might be collateral damage.
1: Let's talk about now, 2017. What are your listening habits day-to-day these days?
2: My day-to-day listening habits are spend half the day trawling through all the stuff I've been sent. And if I've got through that, then I go on to Beatport and just looking for new tunes to to play my set. Because what I, what I want to play, there isn't really a kind of go-to place for it. There isn't a genre in it. You know, like in Beatport, there's minimal tech tech house, tech techno house. You know, there's all these... So I, I don't... I'm sort of always in the middle of, you know, there isn't a a genre. So I have to check every single genre. So I do an awful lot of just flicking through that. I get sent an awful lot of stuff by all the companies. And so I go through that. And at the end of that working day, uh, the last thing I want to listen to is electronic dance music. So then I'll put on some scratchy old blues reggae record that, that will clean my palate ready for the next day so
1: you still find a lot of time to listen to music just for pleasure
2: yes but i don't i can't I f- again one of, one of one of the the, the risks of doing this full time for a living is you stop listening to to dance music in, in, in purely for pleasure you start listening to it in a, with a professional ear rather than just a you know an enjoyment ear and you start thinking that's good that's a good idea note that or fuck i wish i'd done that you know that's great and you start analyzing records rather than just enjoying them and over the years I, yeah when i listen to dance music i'm thinking is that a good dance record and you know it's that's my job my job is to is to 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 pick the the good ones from the bad so you don't have to listen to the shit ones when you go to a nightclub it, yeah it has kind of it means that when I want to listen to, to music for pleasure, I don't listen to electronic dance music.
1: No, but at least you do listen to other types of music. Yeah. yeah. Just, you're not just like, oh, no more music. I'm,
2: well, I'm sometimes. Like... <laughs> sometimes. I was like, yes, please, football.
1: <laughs> Fatboy Slim, these days, what were your goals? What, what was the idea?
2: I've got no more goals. No goals apart from to carry on doing this as long as I'm enjoying it and the crowd is. That these days takes you know I have to work quite hard to compete with the, the young ones. <laughs> I'm not so savvy with social media and you know ways of selling things. So I have, again I have to work quite hard to keep up. But I've I've I enjoy more going sideways than up. You know I kind of I got bigger and bigger and I played to huge crowds and it's it's not so much fun as playing little clubs. So now. I try and vary the gigs. I, I, I try and play really big gigs and festivals, but I also then try and play really uh, small stuff. And how, sm- how
1: small will you go?
2: Like 50 people. Really? Oh. Yeah. Uh, and recently I've been experimenting playing longer sets because then I can go more on a journey with myself and not just play my favourite two hours worth. <laughs> I can experiment more going to new places, just going to new countries that I have been to, just to do, just to do, to play interesting places, do interesting things, and keep, yeah, to keep my interest in it, and, and, yeah, not, I think I've, I've been to the mountaintop, I've, 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 you know, I've done everything you, you can do, I, I'm not, I can't try and keep up with the, you know, features and David Getters of this world, Uh I'm quite happy to, to just maintain a level where I earn a, a happy living and I get to travel around the world, turning people on and looking at their faces every night, and uh, staying young by by absorbing their sweat. It's like a vampire. I mean, instead of instead of sucking their blood, I just absorb their sweat, and 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 you know that keeps me young.
1: Because that's what's interesting is that your your fans actually are. They do just get well, not younger and younger, but they do stay young.
2: No, you know what? The interesting thing is they they. Stay exactly the same. Right. I, look, I look up every night and have done for thirty years, and they're all exactly the same age. The ones down the back might be getting a bit older, yeah. but they they stay down the back. The ones down the front are always the same age, and it's testament. I have to make sure I'm still entertaining them. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm aware that I'm a heritage heritage act, but I don't want to just play a heritage set. I want to I want to be, you know, still current, and that's why I, that's why I still. Put in the hours. Some, you know, some people say I say something about you know sort of going through tunes. They, are like, you go through your own tunes. Mm. I'm like, I have to. Who else could I trust? Yeah. You know, with such a vitally important job. I mean, these days, you know, DJing used to be about you know whether you could beat match, you know, on on two twelve tens, whether you could take out the bit of the record that was no good, and you know, or, um, now you can do your own re edits. You can press the sync button. So the art of DJing is just picking the records and what order you play them in, and so and I I take that very very seriously, and I have to you know I have to keep up.
1: Um, yeah, I was watching your set at, uh, in the John Peel tent at Glastonbury last year, and that was um, yeah people were absolutely loving it. You know, as a, a tent was rammed and well, that was that's the energy. that's
2: the most show that's the showbiz end of of the thing. That's where we do yeah that's when we're using the visuals the most right. and and confetti and things like Those that and i'm using hand signals and i've got a crew of five but then equally three days later just me and my me and my tour manager will go off and play some underground club in like 10 acts and in oh yeah in, i play 10 acts very very regularly just to just because i love it there and and i can try out new tunes see if something like that i can only play the big tunes I can't, I can't experiment. I can't yeah. take any risks. I can't yeah. drop a new tune, not knowing, you know. Because you can play a tune on a Tuesday afternoon here and it can sound good. And then you can drop it on a big system. and It doesn't, it sounds okay, you know. Yeah. So you have to try things out. So if I only ever played those big shows, A, I'd end up playing the same set every night and it would get very boring. So I like to mix that up with, with, with playing smaller places, playing longer sets, I'm taking, I'm taking it to extreme, playing a four-hour set this year, which I haven't done for 20 years. Where's that? In Germany. It's called... Oh, it's the Melt
1: Sleepless no, Floor. Yes. Yeah. I'm playing
2: nice. the first four hours of that. Wicked. I like to keep exploring new places, and I also like to keep challenging myself so I don't just trot out the same old thing. Like, I didn't do a boiler room for ages just because I thought a lot of them look quite dull. They're really good as a calling card of, of if you're a new DJ yeah. and you and you, people want to know if you've got the chops or, or what style of music you play. It's a really good way it, 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 of checking you out. It's like everybody knows me. All I can do, you know, I've got nothing to gain. All that might happen is I might fuck up for it. or it might just look really dull or, you know, I can't showboat if there's no crowd in front of me, if the crowd always behind me, how do I... Perform to nobody, and so there's all kinds of reasons why I didn't do it. But bless them, the boy room kept at it, and in the end, we worked out that if I played a three hour set, that would be different. And if I played in the round, at a, at a club I knew really well, the old Zap Club in Brighton, which is you know is, is a legendary place for me, that we could do a, a good one. And I think we pulled it off. I was talking to I was talking to Dan eats everything the other day because we could do something together. I think we're going to play back to back and i was like yeah you're one of a select few you you carl cox i'm van helden the only people i trust enough to play back to back with because i do get on really well with him but I was, it was just chatting about what i play, and he said if you play like your boiler room set he said well you'll be fine yeah you know <laughs> Could so in a way, it was my calling card that I don't just have to play what I played at Glastonbury. I can actually play deeper and moodier sure. and not so wham bam thank you ma'am. Here comes another.
1: I mean, you mentioned there that you you know you personally use social media much, and that's kind of you feel slightly uncomfortable with that whole world. But I mean, this—it's
2: not that I feel I, not that I don't use it. It's I, feel, I feel I feel uncomfortable with it. I just find it difficult to keep up. Right. I I. I do social media but I kind of get somebody else to do it for me I I feed them stuff and they put it
1: out. if the people at your gigs are 18, 19 then they are the internet generation for whom social media is a huge part of their life you need Fat Wislim needs to have that presence it needs to be a thing yeah so
2: he he does have a presence (laughs) he's just not quite so hands on right He's not quite as ha- as hands on as he could I as he think, should be. Possibly,
1: I don't think many acts of your profile would ha- would be doing their social media. Themselves. I think it's
2: more important to spend my days of tr- going through records and finding really good records. Of course, it is. than to be tweeting the whole time.
1: Um, let's talk about that's your, my that's that's
2: old school priorities.
1: Let's talk about your music. Will you ever make another album?
2: Probably not, because by the time takes me to get around to making an album the idea of an album as a as, as a way of selling music will be redundant right I think streaming and everything the the idea of packaging tracks together as an album it, it used to be because that's how much you could fit on a piece of plastic and that dictated the length of the album or you could do a dull album and everything was based around your whole marketing campaign was based around building up to selling that album Nowadays, people are just doing things and then they're, they're dropping them the next day on the internet. Yep. They've, they're going straight in. They're not, you know. And people are, whether they're buying off iTunes or streaming, they're not streaming the whole album. They're just cherry picking the tunes they want. So I don't think people, by, by the time I finish the long-awaited, difficult fifth album, uh, they won't they won't be releasing albums anymore.
1: What 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 was going on around the period? Kind of two or three years after Palooka Bill, when that fifth album, in theory, you know, could have could have materialized, why didn't it happen?
2: Because I was, I felt like I'd been on a bit of a treadmill, just doing album tour, album tour. And one of the great things about being a DJ is you don't have to do album tour, album tour. So I wanted to get off that treadmill, so I started wandering off and doing things like writing the musical with David Byrne, He Lies Love, I branched out and made my duets album. <laughs> The the ill-fated Brighton Port Authority, which was yeah, just me and my mates. I it was the duets album apart from I Can't Sing, so there were none of them duets. (laughs) Every song has a guest artist. So we had Iggy and David Byrne and um, Justin Robertson and Ashley Beadle, all my old mates who can sing.
1: Dizzy Rascal.
2: Um, Dizzy Rascal, uh, Bootsy Collins, lots of people I've worked with over the years, or people who were mates of mine who I knew I could sing. So I made the BPI ppa album which didn't set the world alight uh, and around that time was that i actually think i went into rehab the week it was released right so i wasn't even around to promote it so that was yeah that was when i was possibly struggling struggling with, al- with, with, with alcohol i mean
1: Right I mean creatively When you get in the studio now Do you feel as, as active as, Do you have as many ideas do you feel as
2: No that's why I haven't I've, my, my output has gone down to One single every three years For other than You know I used to be so prolific But you just put that Tons of to things it. have happened like, like my political You know Thing Over the years Life has intervi- You know I'm now a father of two A lot of the time I'm a single parent So I don't have the time That I, that I used to have I used to love buying cheap old drum machines and cheap synthesizers and seeing how much I could abuse them and buying 303s for 20 quid and thinking, what happens if you distort it? What happens not you do this? And blowing it up. And I liked the fact that you know every six months you could afford to buy one new piece of kit and then you'd learn how to use it. You'd learn the crap out of it. And now faced with a laptop, that has all of that and more in it. The infinite range of what I could do just scares me. I just look at it, I was go, you could do anything. And I don't know where to start. And then I hear my daughter crying in the next room, and next thing I know, another day's gone by and I haven't made a tune. And gradually, but also, again, after this length of career, I don't feel I have to write music unless I'm inspired of course you know and and with something like Eat Sleep Rave Repeat I felt it and I felt yeah this needs to come out and with Where You Is I felt it and when I've got a bee in my bonnet a fire in my belly you know whatever cliche you want to use when I've got that I'll do it and also I think when I physically become too old to be doing the late nights and the travelling that I do right now then that's probably when I'll have time to go back in the studio I'm not turned on I'm making music with a laptop in the way I was turned on by sitting in a studio and twiddling knobs and going, Why must we plug this
1: through this? or
2: you know, we, we don't feel it doesn't feel like I'm breaking boundaries and rules and doing
1: Well why not why not get into a studio. And a
2: it's trip? still there next door. It's still there gathering dust. The last time I used it in Angle was with the Rizzle Kicks. All
1: right.
2: And they openly laughed at me when they saw what equipment I was using and to this day, when they're ever asked, what was it like working with Norman? They always go, you wouldn't believe how antique his studio is.
1: See, I mean, you know, your career is doing as well as ever, as successful as ever. Why has Norman Cook, Fatboy Slim endured for so long? Uh,
2: a number of reasons. I do think I do have some kind of talent. An ear for a hit, bit, an ear for... Writing one or just hearing somebody else's and thinking, that's good, I'll play that when I'm DJing. I do think I've got a talent for it. I also have an absolute love and passion for it, which means that I just refuse to give up. (laughs) And there have been years when, you know, there's been times when my friends have turned around to me and said, maybe it's time you, you know, got a proper job. You know, this isn't really you know, this isn't happening for you. I'm like, I oh, don't oh, let me just you know and and there's been times when I've been that close from from being bankrupt. And so it hasn't oh those thirty two years haven't all been hits. There's been a lot of misses, in, you know, and but I've I've just stuck at it. I refuse to do anything else. But I think it's I think it's my genuine love for doing it. Some people if they want to do something to earn a lot of money once they've earned that amount of money they lose their passion to do it i haven't lost my passion even though i've earned enough money probably to retire on i don't do it for the money i do it because i really love it and it and it it keeps me sane it keeps me driven and it and uh, i and i feel that personal connection i think that's one of the reasons why the studio doesn't turn me on so much because that's just me sitting on my own. When I'm DJing, I've got all these people around me and I'm communicating with them and I'm making them happy and they're making me happy. And that's the most fantastic job to have. I don't take it for granted. And I'm, and yes, I'm, Going to squeeze every every drop out of it that I can until, until somebody comes along with a crook and says, "Come in, number 58. Your time is up." I mean, the thing is, no, none of us know what the retirement age is for yeah. a DJ. Carl doesn't. Tongue doesn't.
1: Well, I was, uh, I Oki
2: was. He doesn't. I was you know, looking he, at none, none of us. None of, you know. Basically, the only the only DJs from our generation who stopped, are Frankie Knuckles.
1: Yeah.
2: Are uh, the ones who died, sadly, Mancuso
1: yeah I was looking at I think Danny Tanaglia was fifty-seven.
2: yeah Danny Tanaglia tried to retire and then he, he couldn't he couldn't get
1: away from it